Tonight I wanted to begin by taking a few minutes to demystify the words Vipassana intensive. Because it seems, for those of you who've been here practicing, you think, what? (laughs) Isn't that what we've been doing? Um, So just to say a little bit about what kind of vision we had for the next couple of weeks, that the intensive part uh, means that we're wanting to give a little bit more support to you in your practice than we normally do at the Forest Refuge. So that means instead of two Dharma talks a week, there'll be three Dharma talks a week. They'll also be on uh, three of the evenings in the week when there's not Dharma talks, there will be guided meditation where there will be some instructions given during that sitting. Um, We will also be offering three interviews per week just as a means of giving you a little bit more support in your practice. And so, you know, if you've been practicing for a period of time, it might be a way to just um, give it a bit of a boost right now. And it may also be that it doesn't, you feel like you want to just practice with the two interviews per week. Um, That's fine. It's optional. Uh, But it can be a time where you know, just a bit more support, just to help you steady in the practice. Um, also, we have posted a suggested schedule. This, too, uh, can give you a bit more support. And, you know, it may be that you look at and you think, oh, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> um, for people who've done a lot of practice at IMS, at the retreat center, it might, you might look at it and it might look a little bit more intensive than what you've been doing. See if you can stretch a bit, you know, and it's not mandatory, you know, we're not going to be in here checking to see who's doing what. Um, It's really optional too, but you can use it as a support, and you could just then step into a really simple couple of weeks. Look at the schedule, see what you do, you follow it. The mind gets upset, you look at it, not a big deal. You could use it as a support. So it's just what's being offered. And then for you to find the way that it best supports you. So, you know, tonight, really looking inside to see how we can wholeheartedly engage in our practice. How we can really turn up for our practice, for life, for being here, for knowing this mind and body. As a means of support to our practice, we might find it helpful to get in touch with what motivates us to practice. Why are we doing this? What's brought us here? You know, it's got to be something very vital or we wouldn't be here. So at any time when your effort energy starts laxing, just to get in touch with what is your motivation for being here. You know, and it's really finding in yourselves what's your motivation, what moves you. We can also support our practice through arousing a sense of urgency. Life is not forever. That the opportunity we have today will be gone, whether it's in the next moment, whether it's tomorrow. Things will change. In being here, it's to find a way to arouse ourselves out of whatever complacency we habitually fall into. And it's so easy to become complacent in life, to take things for granted, 
You know, it can be through just getting lost in a really pleasant way of living and believing it will always be like that. We get lost in distraction. We get comfortable in our lives. And in doing so, we start to shut down. We aren't looking deeply, directly. I love how life brings little events, incidents, to help shake us out of our complacency. I experienced at least one in the last week, and it was quite profound for me. Um, And it brought me face to face with the inevitability of death. It had me deeply contemplating death. And it it wasn't through someone close to me dying. It was through a dream. A dream where I dreamt about my own death. I won't go into the details of it, but just to say that it was very inspiring. Um, When I woke up from the dream, I remembered uh, uh, Kalu Rinpoche when he was dying. And uh, many of us... Uh, people around him, disciples, were distressed over his death that seemed quite near at hand. And he looked at them and he said, don't worry, nothing happens. And through my dream, I tasted of that possibility where there could be that state of deep ease, deep peace, uh, where one would be fearless in the face of death. And this you know, helped to inspire me in my practice to, to realize that my practice is the preparation for death. And that death is inevitable. And one of the other features of the dream was that the death was very near at hand. And so it just, I, you know, when I woke up, I had no sense of being able to take for granted my life. It had me looking to see what I was attached to, where my attachments still lay. Uh, It had me looking in each moment to see whether I was at ease with my experience. You know, even just driving down the roads. This was after the big snowstorm and, you know, a little bit of ice and snow. A little bit, a lot of ice and snow on the roads. And the car starts to veer. And there's that kind of contraction that happens, that fear. And then in that split second, I, I would just think, do I want to die in this state? And I, you know, I don't, clearly. And there would just be a letting go, a release. It wasn't letting go of the steering wheel. One still turns up to do what one needs to but the letting go, uh, releasing of uh, states that obstruct us from a deep ease and peace. So during this time here, to remember that we can just stay in touch with what it is that inspires us in our practice, why we're here, and at times when we're becoming complacent, to arouse a sense of spiritual urgency so that we can wholeheartedly embark upon this journey of awakening. Another way that we want to give support to you during this week or these weeks so that you can wholeheartedly engage is to do a series of talks on the seven factors of enlightenment. These seven factors of enlightenment are the factors of mind that really need to be strong, balanced, and dominant in the mind in order for us to wake up, to rise up out of ignorance. They all help us to see clearly, to see through the illusion 
of appearance, the superficial way of seeing that we so often uh, have in our lives. These seven factors of enlightenment are our allies in waking up. The Pali word for seven factor, the seven factors is bojangas. And the two root words that it comes from are bodhi and anga. And bodhi means enlightenment, enlightened being, enlightened person, or ang and anga is the causative factor. So the bojangas are the causative factors for enlightenment. And that doesn't mean that they cause enlightenment, but when these factors are strong, are present, awakening can occur. That the recognition of the awakened mind can be there. The Buddha once said, Bhikkhus, I do not see even one other thing that when developed and cultivated leads to the abandoning of the things that fetter so effectively as this, the seven factors of enlightenment. What seven? The enlightenment factor of mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. He was also asked why they are called enlightenment factors, and he responded by saying, because they lead to enlightenment. So these seven factors of enlightenment are no strangers to us. They are what gets strengthened as we sit and do insight or vipassana meditation. They will naturally get strengthened. Each of the factors are quite unique in how they manifest and function, and yet they all work together. They all come together and support awakening. Within these seven factors of enlightenment, there's three factors that are arousing qualities that help to energize the mind. And then there's three tranquilizing or stabilizing qualities. And then there's mindfulness, which helps to give us the capacity to recognize the other factors and to be able to distinguish when they are in balance or out of balance. So the three arousing factors are investigation, energy, and rapture. So they help help to awaken and alert the sleepy mind. And then the the three tranquilizing uh, factors are calm, concentration, and equanimity. They help to give a great power to the mind. They help to stabilize the mind. And the Buddha also said, Bhikkhus, just as this body is sustained by nutriment, subsists in dependence on nutriment, and does not subsist without nutriment, so too the seven factors of enlightenment are sustained by nutriment, subsist in dependence on nutriment, and do not subsist without nutriment. He then went on to say that the nutriment needed is to frequently give wise attention. So in the cultivation of these seven factors of enlightenment, how we can really uh, give nutriment to them is to frequently give wise attention. So what is wise attention? It often gets translated as appropriate attention. Bhikkhu Bodhi, in the uh, commentary for the Majjhima Nikaya, 
describes wise attention as being attention that is the right means or on the right track. A further explanation says it's mental advertence, consideration or preoccupation that accords with the truth, namely attention to the impermanent as impermanent, the unsatisfactory nature of mind as unsatisfactory, and the insubstantial nature as insubstantial. When we have wise attention, we are able to pay attention in a way that is in accordance with the true nature of experience. We do so when we let go of our demands, our expectations, our wanting things to be a certain way. And we pay attention to the truth of the way that things are. We pay attention in a way that doesn't create I, me, or mine out of our experiences. In saying that there's wise attention, it somehow implies that there must be unwise attention, of which there is. And that is described as being the wrong means or on the wrong track, or contrary to the truth, namely, attention to the impermanent as permanent, attention to the painful as pleasurable, attention to what is not self and taking it to be self, or what is foul as being beautiful. Unwise attention is what keeps the cycle of samsara happening, turning. And it's wise attention that takes us in the direction of the unbinding of the heart. So I'd just like to give a simple example of the difference between wise attention and unwise attention. Could be that as we're sitting, a lustful thought arises. If we give unwise attention to it, we identify with that thought. We become caught up in the pleasure of the experience, of wanting more of it, of, you know, possibly uh, doing some action that may be quite unskillful, may be quite uh, harmful to ourselves or others, but we become identified with this lustful thought and we feed it and it can you know it can move us in many directions in our life where if we have wise attention a lustful thought arises we see it as a thought we see that it's impermanent we see that it's just a thought it's not going to bring us a lasting peace happiness we, so we don't grip onto it. And we see that it's insubstantial. We see it for what it is, because we have paid wise attention. Wise attention is really about how we pay attention to our experience. And that we pay attention to our experience, because so often we don't. And out of that, too, there can be strong consequences. When we pay wise attention, uh, this is a way that we also cease to fuel or cease to nourish the hindrances which the Buddha also spoke about as being important. In the case of the seven factors of enlightenment, we want to nourish those factors. In the case of the hindrances, 
if we don't feed them, if we don't fuel them, they will diminish. And that's when we find the seven factors growing in strength. So wise attention is an alignment with truth that really supports the recognition of that truth. We find within it that mindfulness is a key ingredient. And so I'd like to spend some time tonight speaking more about mindfulness. What is mindfulness? It's the simple, clear illumination of experience where we can be in touch with whatever is arising in our experience and know it deeply, directly, and intimately. Where there is such a deep knowing of that experience that doesn't have overlays over it, that is not a perversion of perception, but is just able to know experience in the way that it is being unfolding in this moment. So in a moment of mindfulness, the mind is free of analysis, it's free of conceptual overlays, it's free of judgment, it's free of all of the stories about our experience and is a direct knowing of what is occurring. It's sometimes called a reflective awareness. And in saying that it's a reflective awareness, it doesn't mean that we sit and reflect upon, think about in a way that we commonly think of reflect. But it's a way the reflection like a mirror has, where a mirror doesn't distort. And it's just that crystal clear awareness that can know experience without needing to add anything to the experience or without taking anything away from it. When mindfulness is present, there's a presence of mind or attentiveness uh, to the moment that is really steadfast. It doesn't wobble, not intimidated by experience. There was a great title of a book once that I saw. It was called, Above All, Don't Wobble. And it's mindfulness that helps us to not wobble. Because mindfulness is really powerful. It's dynamic. You know, it's not a kind of knowing, you know, uh, a distant knowing or a vague knowing of our experience. Mindfulness has that capacity to pierce right through illusion. Because it is on the non-conceptual layer level and is that the the direct knowing. And this direct knowing is what helps the blossoming of wisdom. Because when we bring mindfulness to our lives, we begin to see all of the habituated patterns that we have that create so much distress in our lives, our way of relating to our lives that keeps us imprisoned in pain.
So it brings us into a deep intimacy where there's not this sense of being the observer of somebody else's life or you know, some distance from. It, it can really bring an intimacy where life is living through us. We, we are, not to say we, there is an awareness of the river of life, the changing flow of life. A few years ago, I was sitting a retreat, and the retreat happened to be in the autumn. As many of you who've ever been around here in the autumn know, New England is an exceptionally beautiful place to be in the autumn. Many times in the autumn, I will like to drive around the roads around here just to see the beauty of fall all around me. And this particular year, I would be in one place for you know, almost the full cycle of the fall, from its beginning to its middle to its ending, and moving into the colder season. So during this autumn, I had a little cabin and I was sitting on the porch of this cabin and looked out up, uh, across a field and then the field was surrounded by trees and in the, uh, across the way was a hill. And this was kind of my view for the whole autumn. I did a lot of practice outside. I sat outside and I walked outside a lot of the day. At the end of my retreat, I just reflected back on how had it had been to experience autumn in this way. And the thought that immediately came to mind was, I was autumn. Not that autumn belonged to me, but autumn had been experienced through all of the sense doors, through seeing uh, the colors, through the changing form, through the the different smells that come. It had been experienced through this mind-body really deeply, intimately. And I was also very aware at that time that it was one of the first autumns where I hadn't been left clinging to the peak experience of autumn. When it's at its peak and it's so vibrant and beautiful, Many times, there's the wanting to prolong, which can often be one day or two days, wanting to prolong that. But when it's just this river flowing through, there's no clinging. There's no grasping. There's no wanting to hang on when mindfulness is present. We can, for ourselves, really know the difference between moments when we're mindful and what the experience is like when we're not mindful. If we just take a sitting and look at the times in our practice when uh, we've just been very rotely with the experience of the breath, it gets boring. I mean, I probably don't need to tell you that. I think it's something we've all learned. It gets dead boring. And, you know, we we can climb the walls. And yet, the experience of the breath, when mindfulness is there, when, you know, just each breath is like we've never experienced a breath before. And it's unfolding. And there's no sense of knowing what comes next. That, That, you know... It's just so fresh. It's so vibrant. It's a completely different experience. An an interesting point is that many of us have a fear that if we become really mindful, we'll lose something. We'll lose the luster of life. We'll lose all the goodies of life. And yet, mindfulness takes us to a level of intimacy that we seldom experience when we are just listlessly moving through life or just mechanically moving through life or following our passion, you know, where we're moving after what we think is going to bring us pleasure. It's really nothing in comparison to what it is when there is just the full presence 
to our experience in this moment. And it doesn't have to be complicated. It can be really simple just to know whatever is happening and to be undistracted in this knowing of our experience. And this is where it gets more difficult because we have so many habits of distraction. so many ways that we cut off from the simple, clear illumination of our experience. So mindfulness is, in one sense, very simple and yet can have a profound impact on our lives. It's actually said to be the master key. It's the master key in how we can come to know the mind. You know, it's the the key that can take us into the knowing of this thing that we call mind, that can help us to see clearly how it is that we get caught. It can help us to see how to be free. It can help us to realize this great unbinding of this heart that so longs to be free. The word in Pali for mindfulness is sati, and translated it means to bring to mind or to bear in mind. This points to the need to remember to come back, to remember to come back and connect with our experience. In the beginning of our practice, we have to work very hard with this. We really have to make a lot of effort to remember to come back. And, you know, so as we sit and we find we're distracted, as we notice that, it's okay. We just come back. And this is a moment of mindfulness, remembering to come back. As we continue on in our practice, we may find that the mindfulness becomes effortless, that we don't need to remember to come back, that there is an ease in being present. The mindfulness becomes unfabricated. We find that there's two ingredients in mindfulness. There's an active ingredient, that of bringing the mind to our experience, and there's a passive ingredient of the non-interfering, the reflective awareness. The active ingredient, remembering to to come back. This is often very difficult because of our habits of distraction. So, at times we need to be quite resolute, firm, in establishing the uh, memory to come back. Sayadaw Upandita says about mindfulness that it's very dynamic and confrontive and says we can't be lazy about this element. And he says, in retreats, I teach that mindfulness should leap forward onto the object, covering it completely, penetrating into it, and not missing any part of it. So 
we might have to be quite strong initially with that memory to remember. Coming back and connecting with our experience. And actually when I was sitting a retreat with him, the last retreat, I sat with him. Uh, He kept using the word plunging. And it was a word that really helped me. So as experience would arise, there was just a sense of plunging the mind into the experience. And, you know, I had a sense of diving with the eyes wide open. So it's remembering to come and diving, you know, and you can't hesitate. Just be with whatever is there. There can be a few very practical ways to support this memory to remember. We can use our body postures as a way, a means of support. Sitting, just the act of sitting, can help to remind us. You know, if we sit in a posture that's upright, uh, that allows us to really have a sense of coming face to face with our experience. And then, you know, maybe at times we crumple, we get more lax, but then we remember that we're sitting, and that brings back that uh, memory to come back, to be present for our experience. In walking meditation, you know, if we're walking and we just set a course of walking back and forth, this again helps us, you know, we're walking and we wander off in thought, and then suddenly we realize, where we are, what we're doing, walking. And it, you know, we're not caught up in where we're going, how we're going to get there. We're just in that simplicity of walking. So it can remind us to come back. Sometimes we might find for different reasons that we need to practice laying down. And you know, it's, a, it's probably not the way we want to enter into a retreat because it's so easy to fall asleep. But there can be benefit to at times exploring how to practice lying down. You know, it's quite likely when we die that uh, we might be in laying down. And so if we know how to practice at that moment, we'll be helpful. And so, you know, when we're lying down as a support to uh, staying awake, we might lay on our back with our hand up. And then, you know, I know from experience that um, the hand starts to wobble much before the fogginess is seen in the mind at times. So it can be an indicator and help to remember to come back. Or sitting with the knees up, or I mean laying on your back with your knees up, and then, you know, they too can fall over in moments of sleepiness. So it will just help to bring us back. And just to remind us too of standing. And even standing posture, just standing, can remind us to be present. Because how often in your life do you stand still? Do you simply stand? And so the posture can bring us back. And to encourage you also to explore uh, meditation in the standing posture. You know, very helpful at times when there's great sleepiness to rather than sit there and be overwhelmed by the sleepiness, to remember to stand up and let the posture support you. We can also use mental noting as a means of support because mental noting helps to bring about strong perception, helps helps us to clearly know, perceive, experience. Now, earlier in my practice, uh, I had a way of sitting down and could sit reasonably comfortably for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, would go into a very pleasant fog-like state, and then get up at the end of an hour and really have not a clue what happened as I sat there. And so it was very helpful to me to use this support of mental noting to help moment to moment to know what our experience is. And we, you know, it can sometimes be a feedback system where, you know, if we're using it when we're walking and maybe we're putting our left foot down and we're noting right, you know, and then suddenly we notice that. It's an indicator that we haven't been closely connecting with our experience. 
it can also be a means of support to this memory to remember to slow down, to make an effort. Uh, effort might be too strong a word. Really, you know, just to point yourself in the direction of slowing down, but really allowing yourself to relax into that slowing down. As we slow down, it happens that we can uh, perceive experience on quite a microscopic level. And this, too, will help be a feedback system to when the mind has gone out become distracted, will help us to see more clearly those moments so that we can come back, reconnect. One of the challenges we find with this memory to come back, memory to remember, is at times when we don't like our experience. And there may be, you know, strong pain, anguish. We may be hitting deep wounding uh, that has occurred during the course of our lives. And the desire to come back, to be present, may not be so strong. It may be at these times that, you know, that we fall into habits of denial, habits of disassociating, with our experience. These are habits that we learned at times in our lives when we maybe didn't have the tools to open to our pain, our suffering. And so we would cut off as a means of protection. But now we have this tool of mindfulness that can help us to be in a steadfast way with our deepest wounding. And in doing so, it's like shining the torch of awareness on very painful places. We help, it helps to bring these feelings out into the light so they can be seen for what they truly are. It will enable us to be free of misconception and not needing to protect ourselves in the ways that we had that lead to greater isolation and feelings of separation. So the first ingredient of mindfulness, the active ingredient. The second ingredient being the passive where we see things just as they are, where there's no reacting to the experience. You know, mindfulness has a great coolness. In a moment where the judging mind arises, and we can be really mindful of it, we can know it simply as judging. You know, it's not saying, you horrible person, look, there you are judging again. It's simply reflecting, judging. This passiveness, um, this passive quality has within it the quality of acceptance accepting things just as they are. It is non-judgmental. It's inclusive. It's friendly. You know, whatever is arising in our experience, we can simply accept, open to, be with, know. There are times in our practice where we will work primarily with our breath um, in our sitting meditation, and other times when we will be opening to all experiences. And this is the gift of mindfulness, 
that we can learn to be mindful of any experience that we have not only on the cushion, but in all aspects of our life. The Buddha described this in the way of developing what he called the four establishments of mindfulness or the four foundations of mindfulness. And really to speak about the four foundations of mindfulness is a complete talk in itself. So I will just remind us of what they are. The first foundation being mindfulness of the body. We work a lot with this in our practice, using the breath as our anchor, using uh, sensations in the body as they arise. We're working with this foundation as we become mindful of walking, of eating. We find that the body often makes a very good anchor as we move throughout the building. The body is readily accessible to us. Sensations of the body, very immediate, very helpful because it is so accessible. And it's helpful to work with this foundation because we so often identify with the body as being my body. When there's pain in the body, there might be great suffering that comes with it if we're identified. Or as the body ages, there might be great suffering if we take it to be I, me, or mine. So when we work with this foundation of mindfulness, it helps to break this identification. You know, when we take, it helps us to know directly and immediately what the experience of the body is. So as we're sitting here, we may have some concept of the body, but when we look directly and immediately, we experience heat, coolness, vibrations, tension, tightness, movement. It takes us below that concept of body and to the direct experience of the body. The second foundation being mindfulness of feelings or the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality that is present with each experience that arises. It's a very important foundation of mindfulness because we have uh, habituated tendencies to be moving towards the pleasant experiences, wanting to hold on to, hang on to uh, these pleasant experiences, wanting to push away the unpleasant experiences, and simply spacing out when there's you know, uh, an experience that's neither pleasant or unpleasant, becoming disconnected. And the, the, if we're habitually run by uh, these habits, it will never allow us to know experience deeply. It will only keep us on the surface, keep us moving, keep us agitated. And we won't be able to know the true nature of our experience. When we uh, become mindful of this foundation of experience, it keeps us from being caught in this cycle of craving the highs and not wanting to be lost in the lows. No, it helps us just to know our experience. The third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the mind or consciousness. And, you know, so, so we can become mindful of consciousness itself or mindful of the colorations of consciousness. Uh, Consciousness is often colored by uh, mind states such as greed, hatred, delusion. Uh, We can also come to know consciousness when it's contracted, when it's distracted, when it's concentrated or unconcentrated. It can also be described as the atmosphere of the mind. 
And it's really important to work with this foundation of mindfulness because the way we view life is so often colored by mind states. And if we aren't aware of these colorations of consciousness, we don't clearly perceive life. So when anger is present in the mind and we aren't aware of that, all of our actions, all of our thoughts can be colored, can be viewed through that filter. And it becomes very different when we can see that filter. And the last foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of dhammas. The Buddha spoke about this foundation of mindfulness um, in the way of some of the lists, the lists that the Buddha is very famous for. He had a great way of being able to look at the way things are and put it very succinctly in lists. And so he spoke about mindfulness as uh, uh, Dhammas as being an, you know, a deep understanding of the five hindrances, how they uh, arise in our mind, how they function, the seven factors of enlightenment, and through the workings of the six sense doors, both internally and externally. He also related the mindfulness of Dhammas to the five aggregates of clinging, the five aggregates that we so uh, often, when they arise in our experience, we identify with. And he also spoke about mindfulness of dhammas culminating in a deep understanding of the Four Noble Truths. As we practice, we really learn about this last foundation of mindfulness we really learn about you know, how the hindrances arise, what gives cause to their arising, and how we can uh, cease to nourish them. You know, what's a wholesome way of being with these hindrances? We learn to what helps to establish the seven factors of enlightenment. We learn to know when they're present, when they're not present. So it's not that in working with this foundation that we need to you know, think about all of the different lists. But as we pay attention to our experience, we, un- we come to understand how things unfold. We find that these four foundations of mindfulness cover all aspects of our experience. So there's no moment in our lives when uh, mindfulness isn't called for. You know, we can learn to be mindful of whatever is happening. With each of the seven factors, there is said to be, uh, you know, slightly different variations on what nourishes the different factors. And it's said of mindfulness that mindfulness is the cause of mindfulness. In one moment of mindfulness, it is the cause for moments of mindfulness in the future. So if we can stay really steadfast in our practice of planting seeds of mindfulness, relating to our experience in a wise way, bringing wise attention to our experience, this will help us to cultivate mindfulness in our lives.
The commentaries also give a few other ways to help to nourish mindfulness. Uh, one is dissociation from unmindful people. So hopefully here we find ourselves surrounded by the next category of nourishment, which that is of surrounding ourselves with mindful people. And you know that's because our habits of ignorance, our habits of delusion are so strong. And you know, if we've ever done a retreat and we've been very mindful, and at the end of the retreat we've gone out and run into somebody who's just chattering away, we know how easy it is to get swept away in that, to become unmindful. And yet, when we're with mindful people, they can deeply inspire us. You know, and it doesn't even have to be spoken. Somebody moving mindfully, somebody here. When we, you know, sometimes you just look at someone and it's like you can feel what's happening to them. Their mindfulness is so strong. And that can inspire us to be mindful of our own experience. And the third way that the commentaries speak of is inclining the inclination of the mind towards the development of mindfulness. And this is really to keep it foremost in our minds, to have this sense of spiritual urgency, to know that mindfulness is the master key, is very important on the journey of awakening. And so not to stray from that, to stay steadfast in coming back over and over and over again, and not to be disheartened because we forget so many times, but just come back. So just coming back, the knowing of this experience. Allowing life to be lived through us, to be known, the experience of this body, this mind. Not needing to fabricate our experience, but to know it directly, immediately. Mindfulness, the first of the seven factors of enlightenment. I'd just like to close with a short teaching from Nyanaponika Tara. I often love Nyanaponika Tara's um, uh, way with words. And so this is just something he once said about mindfulness. Mindfulness is of an unobtrusive nature. Its virtues shine inwardly, and in ordinary life, most of its merits are passed on to other mental faculties, which generally receive all the credit. One must know mindfulness well and cultivate its acquaintance before one can appreciate its value and its silent, penetrative influence. Mindfulness walks slowly and deliberately, and its daily task is of a rather humdrum nature. Yet where it places its feet, it cannot easily be dislodged, and it acquires and bestows true mastery of the ground that it covers. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings come to know the benefits of mindfulness.
closing with the chanting of the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.